I invite you to take a Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew, the 11th chapter. We find ourselves this morning as we continue in this ordinary time through the gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves in chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. As you turn there, in just a moment, I'll I'll invite you to stand um, as we read the word together, but let me set the stage a little bit for the text. Um, So we have been looking at how Matthew is narrating the life of Jesus through the story of Israel, in particular in the genealogy through the life of Abraham and the covenant promises God made to Abraham, through the life of David and the restoration of the kingship, the kingdom of God is at hand, Um, but also the end of exile, the brokenness between God and humankind that we find not only in Babylon and Egypt, but all the way back to the, the Garden of Eden, this life of exile, Christ has come to bring all things back to the Father, through the Son, filled with the Spirit. And so we find that um, Matthew is telling us the story, but he's also giving us five major blocks of teaching. Um, And so the first major block of teaching is in Matthew 5 through 7 that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We got dropped off a little bit after that um, in this ordinary time. Um, But in Matthew 8 and 9, we get nine miracle stories that lead us to where we've been the last couple of weeks, to Matthew 10, the second major block of teaching, which is really what we oftentimes call the the mission discourse or the mission sermon that Jesus gives as he sends the disciples slash apostles into the world to carry the cross and to look for, like we saw last week, look for places of hospitality, places that receive that new creation message. Now we're moving to what will now be the third block of teaching. So in Matthew 11 and 12, we get stories about how Jesus is received. And sometimes we find that he is received warmly as Messiah, largely by the crowds. Sometimes we're not sure how he's received. It's kind of neutral. John the Baptist is kind of, are you the one who's supposed to come? Are we supposed to wait for another When it comes to Jesus' family, Jesus' family is, uh, we don't know about this kid. Um, We think this is good, but we're we're a little confused. And then there are some who are outright no, Um, especially in particular the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And so we get all of these stories in Matthew 10 and 11 about various responses to the ministry of Jesus. Then we are in 11 and 12. Then... The next three Sundays, we're going to get dropped off in the third major block of teaching, Matthew 13, which are the parables about the kingdom and the response to the kingdom. And so we're going to spend three Sundays in that teaching out of Matthew 13. But today, we get dropped off for one portion of a text in chapters 11 and 12, those moments of response. And so we find ourselves this morning in Matthew 11, beginning at verse 16. I'd invite you, if you're with us and able to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Matthew eleven sixteen. To what will I compare this generation? It's like a child sitting in the marketplace is calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. Yet the human one came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be right by her works. Now, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have shown them to babies. Indeed, Father, this brings you happiness. My Father has handed all things over to me. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, and nobody knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wants to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, uh, we get both a lament and an invitation. Again, we're in these two chapters where there are various responses to Jesus. And as he sees these various responses, there's a kind of lament. The lament we find in verses 16 through 19. He's frustrated that most of the responses don't get it right. And they don't get it right kind of falling on two extremes. Um, there are those uh, kind of culturally connected who saw John the Baptist as way too rigorous and he's too extreme. And then there are others who are themselves kind of formed out of patterns of law and legalism who see Jesus and say, oh, but he's a drunkard. And, and so Jesus kind of compares them. It's kind of an interesting little analogy or parable compares them to children who are trying to figure out what to play, and, and they're just not happy, right? Um, it <laughs> made me think of a time, this is embarrassing to talk about, but it reminds me of a time when, um, when I was in fifth grade, and uh, we used to play on the playground, and we used to play happy days on the playground. Um, and I was, this will surprise you, I usually didn't get to play the fawns. Um, somehow I was typecast as Richie Cunningham usually when we played Happy Days. But I remember a particular day where uh, me and my nerdy friends, and we were all like, yeah, let's play Happy Days. And the cool athletic kids were like, no, let's play kickball. You know, and we're like, no, we won't play kickball. We'll play Happy Days. You know, no, we won't play. And we ended up, you know, arguing throughout recess. And recess was over and we didn't get to play anything, right? Like this is, this is the, the kind of parable that's at work here. You're like little children who can't figure out what to do and therefore you miss out on everything. Um, we played a happy song and you wouldn't dance. We played a funeral song and you wouldn't mourn. John came proclaiming repentance and you thought he was too rigid and I have come to proclaim new creation and you think it is somehow even demonic to use Jesus' language. And so they don't get it. But then we get this and you should underline it in your Bible in verse 19, this strange kind of statement, but wisdom is proved to be right by her work. Most scholars think Jesus is capturing this kind of wisdom tradition, uh, Sophia, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, this language that says there is a kind of life that God wants us to capture, and there's lots of ways that we can miss out on that. And it's not so much that it's complicated, but it's tricky. It, it causes us to, to think and to lean in, and, and there's a kind of wisdom that we ought to live. And when we capture that, when we're living the way that we were created to live, there's a kind of beauty, a harmony to all of that. And that is the embodiment of wisdom. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, you think all of this is wrong for various reasons, but I'm wanting to say to you, I'm coming to proclaim to you what the Gospel of John calls the logos, the word, the wisdom for life. And if you capture it, and if you will see it in me, you will see all of the beauty, all of the goodness, all the rightness of that life. And it will be demonstrated out of the living out of that wisdom. For what Jesus wants us to capture is that new creation, that beautiful, that, that life of wisdom and goodness. When we skip down uh, to 20 through 24, which the text omits today, 
really language about how devastating and destructive it is when we miss out on that life, and it spirals into forms of destruction. But then in verse 25, Jesus essentially says, but here's the irony. The people who tend to capture this life or who see it in Jesus and receive it usually are the least expected people. They're people that we might call outsiders, people who have no formation, imagination, training in the story. They are kind of on the outside, and they seem to receive it more beautifully and easily than those of you who've been formed by it already. Come back to that. But this life is really a life of relatedness, father to son, son to his people. And when we receive it, we discover that it is a life, it's an invitation to a life that is life-giving, to a life that invites us to follow Jesus in ways that he can only describe as easy and light and life-giving. And so this morning, as we think about both that lament of Jesus, that those so many aren't getting it, and then an invitation to come and to discover it, I want to, just for a a few minutes, lament um, and invite. As I was been thinking about this text this week, um, it's interesting for me, I, I have been uh, in the church my whole life, which you know, um, but I've also been in Christian education, Christian schools since, uh, since I was about 13, and then raising four kids um, for the most part, uh, with the exception of a few years. I mean, they've been in the church their whole life too, but they have been part of Christian schools their whole, most of their education as well. And because of that, it just feels like I have been, spent 54 years observing, not only living, but also observing people living out the title Christian in who they are. Um, and I would say if I, if I could lament, even within folks in my own generation, as I see them live out faith, that, that when there are errors, when, there, when we miss out on it, there's a tendency to miss out on it two different directions. One is we can oftentimes miss out on what I think Christ is calling us into because we live, and I mentioned this last week, we live out forms of what I'll call a kind of cultural Christianity. Um, those of you who've had kids in Christian school know that, it, that it's not unusual to be part of a school where people want their children to be part of a Christian school because they <laughs> They don't want them necessarily to be vital, pious Christians living out a kind of um, living faith, if you will. But they just really want them to be protected from a lot of things. And, and they want them to be nice people, right? And hopefully make some good decisions with their life that are not destructive. But oftentimes then what can get embodied in the life of families and the life of individuals is a kind of cultured Christianity where we're, we're Christian because we're... Um, what some sociologists call, right, moralistic therapeutic deists. We are people who are living out a kind of life that is nice and is trying to be happy and God's sort of there, but not really. And what happens ultimately, I think, when we live that out, and and as I've observed that in friends and colleagues and observed that in um, folks across the years, what inevitably happens is we live out a kind of faith in form and sometimes in name, but what we actually get captured by, what actually captures our imagination are other forms of idolatry. 
whether that's wealth, whether that's kind of family itself, um, oftentimes it can be forms of sensuality, especially around experience. Sometimes, frankly, it can be things like nation, community, that, that we end up in kind of forms of idolatry, and inevitably what happens is those who have been formed by that either fall into the kind of destruction that happens with idolatry. I was talking actually with somebody this morning about their child who has been captured by a kind of form of idolatry that promised such a good life when it first started. But here's what idolatry always does. It always demands more of us and gives less. And so they, they were lamenting where their child is today, captured by a particular form of cultural practice that has now put them into bondage. And it isn't that they weren't raised in Christian schools or weren't raised in the church. They were raised in all of that, but it was a kind of form of Christianity that was actually committed to some other thing that eventually became God. And I would say usually one of two things happens. Either you get captured by that and you get so miserable you decide, I don't want that anymore. Or you get captured by it and you don't realize you're living in it and you're kind of blind to it for a while until a couple... So a generation or two later, you realize one day you woke up and your children figured it out and they're actually committed to the thing that you were worshiping. Are you with me? Now, the other kind of form is, is we can miss it in some ways the ways that the Pharisees missed it. We can be committed to a kind of legalism. We can be committed to a kind of regulation. But largely we're committed to that out of a kind of fear of what God might do to us. I honestly don't meet as many of those kinds of people anymore as I meet the other. But there were a few of us and a few of my friends growing up who, man, I mean, we were easy marks for altar calls because we were terrified of God, right? And we came by it honestly. Every summer we went to camp, we got scary movies, right? And not like the good scary movies. I mean, the kind, the scary kind, the end up in bad places kind of movies. And so we lived out a kind of faith that was actually a kind of devoted form of legalism, but devoid of any kind of reality of life and faith. And inevitably, I would say what happens is I look across my friends and others who've been in that kind of situation, eventually what happens is you get tired of it, worn out of it, or you begin to be frustrated by a God like Luther who you realize you can never appease. If this is the game we're going to play, I can never be holy enough for God. And so you just give up. Or you get deeper into it, and the problem is the, more, the deeper you get into it, the less holy everybody else is, and you start painting a circle around your life, and nobody's included in that circle. Brent's nodding, thank you. Um, you know a few of those people? Unfortunately, I, I can name some folks that I've known in my life who've done both. I, I have a number of friends who I feel like lived a cultural form of Christianity, fell into patterns of destruction, got out of that only to get out of that into forms of legalism. I have to be careful how I say this, but I have friends who saw me as way too nerdy when we were young and now way, way too liberal now that we're old. Right? And I often, Deb and I will say about them, 
I lament for them because they missed grace going both directions. For the lament is that what we are invited to is not some form of kind of some form of cultural Christianity in which we're actually participating in forms of idolatry just using religious language. But we're also not invited to a, a life of fear that is devoted to particular ways of being or not being in the world. For if those are our lives, if that's where we find our imagination, and I, and I want to say to us this morning, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think this is very difficult because, and again, Jesus will say, it's so strange how outsiders get this better than insiders. And part of my lament is I do think both forms, both of those misformed aspects of faith are so deeply woven into our imaginations, many of us who are raised in Christian faith. They're so deeply ingrained in our imagination, so woven into the way that we live, we can't even see it. So many of you listening or even present here today are, think, are thinking, I'm so glad pastor is preaching this message for and someone across the room. Not realizing, no, it's for you. But we don't see that form until we get into some deep form of brokenness or until we get so tired we've had it. And we miss out on what Jesus calls actually wisdom. The new creation, what he's inviting us into. And so this morning, I just want to say there's two or three things that I think are central to this wisdom. And wisdom is so tricky, it's hard to say, you know, to turn it into three things that start with the letter B. It's just too slippery. It's too deep, it's too vast, mysterious. But I do think we can say things like this. The wisdom and life that God is calling us into looks more like transformation than it looks like legalism. You see, one of the reasons that we miss it both ways is if we were raised in forms of legalism and we get tired, we throw that all away, but then we miss out on actually transformation. So here's the thing. When, when I, and this is an if, but if I want my body to be different, if, I, if at some point I want to transform what my body is, and I'm about to give up on that, but if I wanted to do that, There are things that I would have to begin to say no to. And there are other things that I would have to begin to say yes to and make habitual in my life. It's, it's why I'm about to give up on this part because there are, I don't want to say no to those things and I don't want to say yes to these others. But, but if I were to transform my body, I, would, I know that it isn't a kind of legalism, but I would have to say no to certain things and yes to others. If I want to continue to work on the transformation of my mind to be what I think God wants it to be, there are things I have to say no to that waste what my mind was created to be. And there are other things I think I have to say yes to and make ha habit in order for that transformation of mind to take place. And so the wisdom that we find is not some pattern of legalism, but nor is it some sense of license it is a heart that is devoted to what we were created to be and to commit ourselves to be transformed to be what God created us to be, the language I use, new creation. 
that inevitably means that I have to say no to some things and yes to some other things, but not out of a sense of fear, but out of a sense of delight for becoming what I was ultimately created to be. And this wisdom looks personal and relational without being individualistic. So Jesus talks about his relationship to the Father and the Father to the Son and the Son with others. I, uh, I, I know Brent feels this way too. One of the things that, that I think growing up in certain patterns of Christian, American Christianity in particular, I have desperately wanted us to think about the theological word is ecclesiology. And I know you've heard me say this maybe a hundred times. Um, we're called to be the church, not just go to church. I want us to, <laughs> to be the church, to be committed to that living body. But the other side of that is our faith is always deeply personal and relational as well as communal. I think we've had a tendency to fault on a personal relationship that actually is, we use the language of me and God, but it's actually just me with the little God added in, which is actually a kind of form of personalistic idolatry. That's why I need the church. I need you to constantly remind me of actually who God is and what God has invited us to do and to be and to hold me accountable to that. I, I am not... Uh, to go back to Romans, there's too much flesh in me. I need you to be the embodiment of God's spirit calling me into accountability. However, it is possible to know church and not Christ. And if our ancestors were right in this, it is that faith, whatever else it is, it is personal and vital. And one cannot just simply know church. One has to know who Christ is and the reality of Christ as the living Lord of one's life. Because it's only then that we can learn to live not out of fear, but out of love for the one who has loved us and redeemed us and whom we want to honor with our lives. And then the invitation that is so wise is an invitation to live a life that is a life of ease, a life of peace, but not a life of isolation. Um, one of the ways that we can live a life of ease, um, this is an ancient philosophy. The philosopher Epicurus said, you want to know how to live without pain? No offense, but rule number one, don't get married. Rule number two, don't have kids, right? Like Epicurus said, the happiest, the gods are happy because they don't care about us. That was the way the Greeks viewed things. And so the way to live peacefully is not be committed to anything because the more committed we are, uh, mo relationships, mo problems, right? Mo friends, mo headaches. And so the way to live ease is to, to be unburdened. And I fear that sometimes we hear the invitation of Jesus, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. <laughs> as a call to isolation. As a call to say, oh, good, 
I care way too much. And God's told me, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Let's sing the hymn together, let it go. Like, I do want you to notice the metaphor Jesus uses is actually a work metaphor. We will yoke ourselves to something. We will work for something. But Jesus invites us to do work, to lean into something that is not going to take our life away, but is actually going to give life. Every once in a while when I read student evaluations, uh, some of my favorites are, I liked this class even though it wasn't in my major, right? This is one of my favorite classes that wasn't in my major. And usually what students mean is, when, I ha- when I'm in my major, I pay attention. I care, right? Like there's something about the classes that are in my major that just fit with me, but not philosophy or not theology or not these other things. And I understand that at some level. Um, I, I want you to know, preaching takes effort every week, but it has never worked for me, right? Like, I love this. I don't know, I don't know if you do. We'll take a survey. Um, I love it. I love the weekly opportunity to get to discover what the Lord says in a text and get to proclaim that to people that you love and to together be formed by God's word. That is so delightful. And it takes a lot of effort, trust me. But it's never worked for me. Now, there are some other parts that are work, and we can talk about that. That's why we have staff here. <laughs> the other parts that are work, right? Some of you know that there are those things that you do where you feel like, yes, this takes a lot of effort, but this part of my life, this is not work. And wisdom, what Jesus wants to invite us into, is a life that is more than just a cultural form of Christianity and certainly is not a life lived out of fear of God, but is an invitation to participate in a new creation life that is lived out of love and a desire to be transformed by God's glory. And when we live into that, Jesus says, it's not that it won't take effort, but it will never be work. It will be peaceful and restful, and it will be a harmony that just resonates with who you are. That's why growing up in the church, there are often folks that I think of as having missed it one direction or another. There are so many people who have been the reflection of a joyful, yoked to Christ, spirit-filled Life of love, thanks be to God for so many of you. For whom watching or participating today is more than just taking role with God. It is the delight of being related to God and God's people. And worship is more than just simply you getting kind of goosebumps for Jesus. It is an opportunity for you to proclaim the praise of the one who is changing you day by day and moment by moment. And when we become that, Jesus says the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And so this morning as we come to a table, um, we come in a way that's a little bit unique. Um, I, I wish that we were able this morning 
to gather in ways that were more relational. But in the meantime, <laughs> we're going to participate today in the meal of the Lord as a reminder that what we are called to is connection to him and to each other. That we would be transformed by his grace. And this morning, if we were able to, um, we'd have an altar call. Um, but you know, you, you don't have to come to an altar for the Lord to meet you where you are. And so this morning, the invitation is this. If you know church but not Christ, and if you know regulations but not transformation, and if you know fear but not love, the one who hosts us today laments. For the Lord has so much more for you than church and regulations and fear. But he invites you to come to know Christ and to know transformation and to know love. And perhaps this morning, this meal is an opportunity for you first to see how you have missed it, but also an opportunity to receive all that he has for you. Almighty God, we come to you this morning thankful that you have not invited us into something that takes away from what you want us to be, but you have invited us to that which gives abundant and eternal life. Have mercy on us. Uh, we miss it often. But we want that life that seems wise and beautiful and in harmony with you and with each other. And so this morning, help us to know you. Help us to know your transformed life and help us to know your love. We take these elements this morning, um, bread and cup, we ask you to consecrate them. Make them be for us today the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we take this meal together, we invite you to transform us. Transform us by your grace and transform us by your love. For we pray this in Jesus' name.